Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. How are we doing today? Good? We are in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, and we are in our Advent season. And last week we talked about hope, and today we're going to talk about peace. We're going to talk about peace on earth, which is a very common theme for Christmas. It's a very common theme in the church. In fact, you're going to see it around here. I'm sure you see it on Christmas cards. But it's a funny thing when we talk about peace, because it may not be what you think it is. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a prayer retreat, and I was taking a break from uh, dwelling in the third heaven and came out and went for a walk, and I was walking down the street, and this runner was running toward me, and it was obvious this was a seasoned runner. They had the garb, you know, they looked like a runner, they had, you know, the cadence, the, it just was all working. I could just tell this is not something you picked up yesterday. And as she was getting closer to me, I noticed she had something in her hand. And at first, I thought it was like pepper spray or mace or something like that. So I'm stepping aside just a little bit. And then she started to raise it to her mouth. And I go, oh, it's an inhaler. Like, what an amazing person to be out running who's struggling with asthma and yet <clears throat> needing an inhaler but still is clicking it, like just going for it. And she took a big hit on her inhaler, and as she passes me, she lets it out, and it wasn't an inhaler at all. Smoke came out of her mouth like a dragon. It was like <laughs> just a cloud of smoke. And I realized she was running and vaping at the same time. <laughs> and I thought, this is glorious. This is, and I wanted to stop her and say, yes, yes, what a contradiction. You're a living contradiction. I am going to use you in a sermon. <clears throat> and that kind of is the picture of peace for us today. Because when we think about peace, it may not be what we think about. Because when peace comes, the first thing it does is wages war. I know. It's hard to understand that peace wages war against false peace. In fact, false peace has to be destroyed so that we can have peace. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what false peace is because you know what it is. I mean, families that have issues that they just don't talk about, that they've agreed that these kind of things, we, we just don't talk about. Them. We live around those issues. Or married couples who just have hot topics that they're never going to touch. And so they agree that, that <clears throat> on the surface, it's going to look like we're just like, a calm lake with no ripples whatsoever, but underneath the water are like vaping dragons, you know, that are just, just destroying things. Or maybe you go to workplace and there's that one person in the office that everybody kind of knows is a bully, but nobody really confronts that person. So you kind of negotiate kind of a peaceful workplace, but it's a false peace. It's not a real peace. We get that with friends, family members, workplace. So I read this story the other day about this guy who was telling his life story, and he was saying when he was in ninth grade, uh, his dad decided that he was going to paint their dining room. And so he went to Home Depot, and he bought the tarps and the paint and the trays and the brushes and the rollers and the tape. And so he came home, and he covered everything in the dining room table with all the tarps, and he started to tape off the room and hitting all the trim. And he painted about half a wall and then just kind of quit. He got tired, and he quit, and he just left the brushes and the trays and the roller, 
And he said when he graduated from high school four years later, they were still walking around those tarps over everything in the dining room with a half-painted wall and the brushes still in the tray. Like, what's going on? He said, well, see, my dad was an alcoholic. And my dad was great at starting stuff, but he never finished anything because he would always drink too much. And he said, but our entire, my entire high school life was walking around the tarps that we never talked about. We never talked about dad's alcoholism. We just all lived around. That's negotiating a false peace and living in a false peace. And what I want you to hear during this Christmas holiday, the first thing peace does is come and wages war on false peace. Wow. <laughs> Merry Christmas. So, Allie, come on up. Uh, last week we talked about hope, the power of hope during Advent, because hope gives us eyes to see that God's pouring his love out in our hearts. Today we're going to talk about peace. And here's how I want you to understand it. And if you have a pen, uh, some paper, you're going to want to take notes, kind of what the Lord is telling you, or we're going to jump to a lot of scripture, so I'd encourage you to write these down and go back and read them. But I want you to think of peace in this way. Peace is the courage to act. Peace is the courage to act. So we're in Isaiah chapter 11. Now remember, if you weren't here last week, the reason we're in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is this incredible book of prophecy that was written 700 years before Christ was born. And it's a prophecy of the coming of Christ, his first advent, where he was born in the major. Then he lived this perfect life and died on the cross for us and then rose again from the dead. And when he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And now we, the church, are in this waiting time. That's why it's called Advent. He's coming. We're in this waiting time between the time that he ascended into heaven and the time he promises to return. So actually for us, the church, Advent is where we're pausing. We're taking a break and we're looking at the return of Christ when he will return and asking this question, how do we live in the in-between, the already and the not yet? So let's hear this amazing passage of prophecy because it's talking about extraordinary peace when Christ comes again. Whenever you're ready, yeah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy, holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people 
from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. Thanks, Allie. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we need you to bring <clears throat> revelation that we would, Lord, not just understand what this passage is about, but also, Lord, to experience what this passage is about, that it would move from our head to our hearts, to our hands and to our feet, that, Lord, we would not be people that just come and uh, become spectators of your goodness, but, Lord, we become participants in your goodness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this may be a passage that you've heard before, this whole idea that the, the wolf will live with the lamb, the lion will lay down with the sheep, and a child will lead them, this whole idea that kids are going to be playing with cobras and sticking their hands down in, you know, viper's nest, and they're all going to be okay. And it's this picture of a peace that really, in reality, it transcends anything that we could possibly even imagine or even maybe even hope for. I mean, it is a peace that if we get into the details of this, it's a piece that actually takes what is normal and completely flips it upside down and makes the, the not normal, the extraordinary, the impossible, the new norm. And I love it when God does this kind of stuff because God is just like showing off. He's just showing off. He's like, you think you know what peace is? Let me tell you what peace is like. You can't even imagine you live in such a world of conflict that you can't even imagine that there's going to come a day where everything that you know is going to be upside down. And that's what I love about our God because our God is a God that keeps challenging our ability to grasp the wonder of who he is. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, do you know that God says that he is going to bless you according to his abundance? Now, let me tell you why that's so significant, because he's not saying he's going to bless you out of his abundance. He says, I'm going to bless you according to my abundance. In other words, I'm not going to bless you out of my abundance, meaning God has everything. He has a lot. He has abundance, and he's going to give a little bit of it to you. Out of my abundance, I'm going to give it to you. That's not what it says. It says according, meaning that if we could grasp the abundance of God, the vastness of all that he is and all that he has. If we could measure that, God says that measurement is the extent by which I'm going to bless you with. That your blessing is going to be a reflection of my abundance, not just out of my abundance. I look, there's a restaurant in New Orleans. I grew up in Louisiana, uh, and it's a five-star restaurant called Commander's Palace. Has anybody ever eaten there? It is like, yes. Is it good? Really, can I not get an amen for like seafood and Creole? Wow, are you guys dead this morning? It's like Christmas, we're so excited. Uh, but this restaurant is unbelievable. And if you go to that restaurant, you can sit, you can get at a table. They'll come out, you have to have a jacket and all, you have to dress nice. But when you come in, they give you a menu and they say, you can order out of our abundance. So you go, wow, the kitchen is full of all this stuff here. You know, I'll take, you know... I'll take number three. No, they don't have a number on. All right, but they're gonna, they, you can order out of their abundance. But if you're lucky, there is a table in the kitchen called the captain's table. And if you reserve the captain's table, they put you in the middle of the kitchen at a table. And here's the benefit of the captain's table. 
Everything that comes out of the kitchen first stops at your table. Everything they make that night, you get a taste of. You get to experience not out of the abundance, you get to experience according to the abundance of that kitchen. Do you see the difference? That's your God. And so when he says, you don't even know what peace is, he's painting a picture for us of peace that is remarkable. And that should be what he does. Because what does it say in Isaiah 9? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's why the first half of this passage is so hard to understand. Because if you go back, we get, you know, he, a shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. It's this idea that David's father was Jesse, and he's coming in the line of David, and that tree was chopped down, but in that stump then comes this shoot named Jesus who is in the line of David. We get that. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. We know that Jesus was the second member of the Trinity. He was God in the flesh. We understand how he was full of spirit of wisdom and understanding. But then we get to verse 3, and it starts using words like judgment, that he's coming to judge And he's not going to judge like you and I judge. He's not going to judge by what he sees. He's going to judge by what he knows. And then it starts talking about that his judgment, that he'll give decisions about everything that has ever happened on the planet. And then it says in the middle of verse 4 that he is going to strike the earth. Wait a minute, what? (laughs) He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Then it talks about how he's dressed. And you know how he's dressed? If we understand Old Testament language, this is a picture of Jesus dressed for war. He is dressed for war, and he is coming to war against the very enemies of the kingdom of heaven. See, here's what we have to understand. You can't have a peace that's based on a false peace. Like... The president of Ukraine can't get on TV today and go, hey, we declare peace. We're, you know what? We're tired of this. We're going to just declare peace. He can't do that while there are Russian troops invading his country. He can get on there and say all that, but it's a false peace. A real peace only comes when there's real peace. And Jesus knew that too. In other words, Jesus had to clear everything and everyone that was standing in the way of the peace that he was bringing. Well, this shouldn't surprise you. I mean, if, if you think that Jesus is this milk toast kind of wimpy kind of character from history, then you haven't read the New Testament. I mean, we hear stories of Jesus going into the temple. You know, have you read the story where he's turning over tables and he's made a whip, you know, and he's running people out of there? Do you know that in Matthew, oh man, I'm not going to be able to find this. I think I will. Let's see. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 10. There's this verse 34. These are the words of Jesus. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. This is the Prince of Peace. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, we get that. A man's enemies. (laughs) We do, though. We do. All right. But a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Wait a minute. For Jesus to bring peace, he first had to go war against those that were creating a false peace. The the enemies of the kingdom. And who are the enemies of the kingdom? Us. 
Jesus has come to war against us. In Romans chapter 3, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And in our sin, we have declared rebellion against the kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 5, it says, We are enemies of God in our rebellion against God. It goes on to say that the wages of sin are death. In other words, the works of my hands, the works of my mouth, the works of my mind, where I have sinned against God, the things that I have done that I should not have done, the things that I have not done that I should have done, the complacency of injustice and my hands in injustice, all these things have made me a sinner, and the wages of those sins are death. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, it goes on to explain who we are. It says in verse 9, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Any advantage at going to Midtown? Not at all. Any advantage at being a Midtownian? Not at all. It says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And how does God deal with his enemies? Jesus comes dressed for war to bring judgment against the wicked. That's staggering. That's terrifying. Because Jesus, he's not duped. It's not that he doesn't know you or he knows what you've done. And he's going to bring perfect justice. He's going to bring full justice. He's going to bring justice that's dripping in truth, complete and absolute, and not diminishing anything. That's scary. That there's going to come a time, friends, that we're all going to stand before the high king of heaven. And every one of us is going to have to give an account for the crimes that we have committed against this kingdom. And knowing that, this is the beautiful story of our prince of peace. Knowing that one day we will stand there. He decided you will not stand there alone. You will not stand there alone. In fact, in Revelations chapter 19, there is this picture that is, if you, you can kind of piece it together because it's a lot like Isaiah chapter 11 in the coming of the king. Can I read it for you? It says, I saw in heaven, standing open, and there before me was a white horse and whose rider is called Faithful and True. This picture of Jesus. With justice, he judges and wages war. He is a warrior. His eyes are like blazing fire on his head or many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Whew. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress on the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our Prince of Peace. 
And let me tell you where the hope is in that passage. It says here that his robe is dipped in blood. You know what that means? It's not dipped in the blood of his enemies. The Jesus that we serve knew that we would never be able to bear the day where we stand before the Father and give an account because we wouldn't be able to handle the price that we would have to pay for what we've done. So our conquering king, our divine warrior, he dipped his robe in his own blood. He said, what you cannot do, I will do. And he who knew no sin, who was perfect in all ways, became all of my sin and died for all of that sin so I can become the righteousness of God. That's what our high king of heaven did. He didn't come and turn a blind eye to what I've done wrong or to my sin or my brokenness. Are you kidding me? True love isn't blind. True love's eyes are wide open. And his eyes were wide open. The just became the justifier. The one who has sinned against became the one who paid the price for the sin. The one who was offended took on all the offense. It's outrageous. It's unbelievable that Jesus says, you can't bear to stand before the Father, so I'll stand before the Father for you, and I'll take on the wrath of God so that now you will be declared forgiven and you will be declared righteous, righteous, so that when you stand before the Father, he'll look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the power of grace. In fact, that grace is so powerful. It says in 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, like if you claim, I'm not really that bad, then you deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's the equation. No matter how much you've sinned, Christ is greater. No matter what you've done, where sin increases, grace increases even more. So the journey of us in this piece is that we are bringing our sin to the one who pours his grace all over it. He exposes our sin so that he can deal with our sin so that we can walk in freedom. Okay. What does that mean? How do we live now? How do we live now? Remember, peace is the courage to act. So if we have been brought from death to life, if we have been those that were alienated from the kingdom of God and now we've been brought into the kingdom of God, now that we're called sons and daughters, we're called his beloved, we're a part of the family now. And let me tell you what's a mark of this new family that we're in. We are peacemakers just like our father. But we know that making peace first shatters the false peace before it can make real peace. And here's what's difficult about it. You're sitting in a church in the South, in America, and this is like the Petri dish of false peace. I'm telling you, look around you. You guys all look so good. Like, you don't look, you're desperate for anything. Like, you, you're clean, you smell good. Some of you took showers. Thank you, by the way, we appreciate that. We all look so good. And here's what's so good about what we do here in the South is we're good even when we're not good. And I'm good with you even when I'm not good with you. I can come to church and absolutely despise you, but when I see you at church, you would think we're old friends. Oh, buddy, it's great to see you. And not only do we experience that, we, we grow that here. It's like the Southern way. And the Southern way is never be honest. 
never be truly honest, never really deal with conflict, smooth everything over. You never know when you may need a favor from somebody, so don't cause any problems. We do that a lot at church. Because what do we do at church? We teach each other how to be kind and nice. And kind and nice doesn't create problems. Hey, you don't have to knock over the apple cart. Let's be serious now, okay? Don't stir the pot. Don't create waves. Let it go. It's not that big of a deal. Just eat it. It'll all be okay tomorrow. Just sleep on it. And we are constantly producing false peace. Have you ever gone to small group and left small group and you said something to your spouse you would never have said in small group? Only two of you. Wow. (laughs) It's worse than I thought. (laughs) Have you ever had your feelings hurt? And as you're expressing it to your spouse or your roommate or your best friend, and they go, wow, what are you going to (sighs) do? Nothing. It's, It's not that big a deal. And then you can't sleep all night long. We are so good at producing false peace in our families, with our friends, and in our church, in our community. So I saw a friend not too long ago, and we were talking. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. We used to hang out a lot, you know, but life kind of got, you know, crazy. And we were talking, and as we're ending, you know, we were both in a hurry. So we did that, you know, that three-minute catch-up. How the kids? Hey, got to go. And then you always say this when when you're parting ways with an old friend. Hey, we should get together sometime. You ever done that? And I said to him, and I said, hey, man, we should grab a beer sometime and just get caught up. And he goes, yeah, Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and I, uh, I didn't think anything of it until he called me the next day. And he goes, hey, man, that really hurt my feelings. I said, I'm sorry, what? Uh, what really hurt your feelings? He goes, you asked me to go get a beer with you. Bro, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And you know that. And I was like, whoa, bro, I... I don't know, man. It just completely slipped my mind. I don't know what I was thinking. That's incredibly insensitive to me. Will you please forgive me for this sin that I committed against you? And he goes, yes, thank you. And we talked about it some more. And I said, are we good? He goes, man, we're real good. Let's get together sometime. So what's the lesson to learn from that exchange? It could be, don't ever ask anybody to go get a beer, all right? (laughs) In fact, we should never drink. That should be the law because you may offend somebody and we don't want to offend anybody. Remember, we're kind and nice. We're the church. No, maybe that's not the lesson. Maybe the lesson is don't ever make mistakes when it comes to your friends. That's a great rule. That's an absolute perfect rule. And some of you live by that rule that whenever it comes to your relationships with other people, don't ever make any mistakes that you offend anybody. In fact, you live by that rule because when you do make mistakes, you beat yourself up for weeks afterwards because you hold yourself to a standard of perfection when it comes to your behavior with other people that you really believe that if you act perfectly, you'll never have any problems. Okay, let's all agree that's not, that's not the lesson, all right? Some of you are going, yeah, that was good, man. That was, let me write that down. What scripture verse is that from? Maybe the lesson is when we fight to keep false peace, which he could have done, he could have said, it's no big deal. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to call Randy. I'm, you know what? I'm just going to, I'll deal with me. I'll deal with me. Then when he's with another friend who knows me, he could have easily said, you know, you'll never believe how Randy crushed my heart the other day. 
oh, wait a minute. False peace now is producing gossiping. You know? And then more than that, what gossip does is it, gossip, it loves this. Gossip loves to tell a story. It should write books. Because here's the story that gossip could easily write. You know what? He, he never really loved you. He never really was a good friend. He doesn't really care for you. So now, false peace is gossiping. And now it's not just gossiping, but it's creating false stories that have no, no connection to reality whatsoever. And then it does its final thing, which is when, when I live in false peace and I'm gossiping, I'm creating stories, and it starts to turn my heart cold and bitter, here's what I do. Yeah, I don't think I want to go to lunch. We take a step back from one another. This false peace is killing community. It's com- you guys know we've been placed here as the body of Christ in our lifetime to be the light for the gospel in this city. We're on mission here. We're on mission to bring the word of Christ to this city and help others experience freedom from their sin and new life in the spirit. And the one thing that will destroy that is deciding we're going to live in false peace. That we're just not going to really deal with anything. And the reason we don't is because it's hard. It's just hard. And it's hard because we're afraid of conflict. Because conflict is worthy of being afraid of. And I've got my five. I've got my big five. You know, the, the five fears that we have when it comes to f- conflict. You know, I call them the fist of fury. You know, one, two, three, four, five. You know, the double F's. The first fear that we have that I think when it comes to conflict is that we have a fear of judgment. That when, when I'm dealing with a false peace, I'm actually risking by letting you see something that is important to me. And if I let you see something that's important to me, I'm being vulnerable with you, and you could judge me for that. When we uh, were getting ready to launch Midtown, there was a church in Brentwood that was helping fund the beginning of Midtown. And so they, they were going to give us our first year funding. And one of the, uh, the leaders of that church was this old guy, uh, you know, kind of cranky old guy. And one day we were walking out of church and he goes, I hope. Oh, well, I'm doing old people really bad. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm getting close to that category, all right? So I can make fun of myself. And uh, he goes, man, I hope y'all are going to preach the gospel down there. And I said, well, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. We, we plan on preaching the gospel. And he says, good, because there's a bunch of Democrats down there and they need Jesus. I said, uh, huh. Kind of sounds like what you're saying is Democrats aren't Christians. And he goes, exactly. (laughs) I would like to tell you that at that moment, you know, super Christian showed up and said, sir, how dare you? (laughs) I was afraid. Here's a God's voting on my funding for the next year. And for me to confront him, for me to challenge what he's thinking, to say, man, how can you think like that? Like, and that I was happy with the false peace because I was afraid of his judgment, of my convictions being seen. Second fear is fear of rejection. Will you love me? My friend who called me to confront me, he risked. Me saying, man, this is silly, bro. What are you talking about? He could have been rejected. Third fear is 
we're afraid of offending somebody. Like, we literally, we're afraid that we're going to hurt somebody. Some of you in this room, you're the nicest people on this planet. And you hide behind your niceness. And you think it's your shield, but it really is your invisible cloak. And what it is is that you can't say no to anybody. And you would never walk into confrontation because you're afraid that you're going to hurt somebody and you couldn't live with yourself if you hurt somebody's feelings. That you're nice and you're kind. So it's fear of judgment, fear of rejection, fear of offending other people. Some of you have fear of abandonment. And i got to tell you, you know, hey, join the club. Some of us have a legitimate fear of abandonment because we've experienced abandonment. And we know what it's like. We don't want to go there again. And we're going to spend our whole lives going through life with this little ghost called abandonment's history right here with us. And guess what? You're going to have to spend your whole life facing that fear and confronting that fear. That's a very real fear. But that fear of abandonment cannot control your life if you're going to be a peacemaker. And then finally, some of you are like, y'all are just a different breed. There are some in this room that are like, Thank God he's finally talking about conflict on Christmas. I am so ready for this. And you'd love to fight. Like you're already making a list of all the people you're going to confront when you leave church today. And you're like, I cannot wait. Finally, the green light. Go, 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 go. But your fear is you're too much. You have no fear of going into conflict. What you're afraid of is that you love conflict too much. And you've rolled over people. And you really love them because Jesus is with you. And you, you're afraid I'm too much. Well, remember what God tells us. For God has given us a spirit, not a fear. He's given you a spirit. This Jesus who went to the cross for you, the one who came to do battle for you while you were an enemy against him, he fought for you and brought you to life by the cost of his own blood. That's how he brought peace. That same Jesus gave you power, not fear. He gave you love, not fear. And he gave you self-control. Why do we need power, love, and self-control? To move toward one another. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, there's this very familiar passage that talks about the armor of God. And it says, put on the armor of God. Why? Because we're at war. We're fighting for things that matter. We're part of a kingdom of peace, but we know that peace is courage in action. And we are those who are shattering false peace so we can move toward true peace with the people that we love. Because we believe that when we shatter the false peace, this pretending, this game, this, this hiding, and we bring things to light, we believe the love of Christ the power, the love, and the self-control is enough to start to deal with these things and bring real healing in relationships and people's lives. So we put on the armor of God, stand firm then, and put on the belt of truth. Buckled around your waist in the breastplate of righteousness. Your feet are fitted with the gospel, the shield of faith, and take on the helmet of salvation. We've been given grace, and we give grace. So that as William Blake said, we bear the beams of love. So we're coming to this table. Um, before I talk about this table, maybe let me talk a second about how do we come to this table today. In light of what we're talking about, this season of peace, is that you would come to this table and remember the peace that Christ has purchased for you. That this would be a day where you would pause and 
remember that his grace covers a multitude of sins. And so maybe this table today, in that remembrance, you're bringing your own sins before the Lord, repenting, laying them down, and saying, Lord, bring me your peace in the midst of my sin. But it also says we come to remember, we also come to proclaim that this may become the table where you go, Lord, where am I settling for false peace? In my relationships? In my family? In the workplace? In this community? Here at church? Where am I settling? Where are you calling me now to have courage and move in action toward the people around me to shatter the false peace so that we can build true peace? And let him lead you in this place. So let me tell you about this table. Paul said, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the way we do it here at Midtown is the band's going to come in in a second and it's going to lead us in worship and use that time to worship the Lord and maybe listen to what he had you here for today and what he's pressing on your heart. When you're ready, um, come on up. Um, Squeeze in. And then uh, if you'll come using the aisles in the room and then use the hall uh, to exit and make your way back to your seat, that kind of gets a loop going. If when you come up here, you find that you need prayer, you'd like somebody to step into your journey, just cross your chest and somebody will pray for you. And remember, we have wine on the outside and grape juice on the inside, so uh, we'll let you choose which is best for you. But let me just remind you before we come to this table, When the band comes in, for some of you that have done this for a long time, we switch into religious mode. And uh, sometimes we stop listening because I'm not talking anymore. But when I stop talking, that's the best time to start listening. And I want to encourage you, whatever you need to do between now and the time this service is over, for you to listen to what the Holy Spirit and the Lord has for you this morning, do it. If it's standing in line, if that's how you listen to the Lord, stand in line. It's not how I listen to the Lord. But if that is for you, go ahead and do it. If it's not, crash the line. Come on up. Kneel on the sides. Wait till the line's over. But use this time to worship and to bring your whole self to the Lord so that he can give you what he has for you today. Lord, we pray for these elements, Lord, that you would consecrate them for your service now. That, Lord, you would take this wine and this bread And that, Lord, you would do what you promised to do over 2,000 years ago when you said, do this in remembrance of me. That you would take this sacrament and you would transform this from a religious ceremony into an encounter with the living God. That you would come and meet us in this place and convict us of sin so that, Lord, uh, we can taste your grace afresh this morning. And also, Lord, lead us in those places where we have compromised and we have not been courageous And give us courage to act. Meet us in this place, we pray. Amen.